seated. We can turn with your Bibles to the prophet Hosea, chapter 8, as we continue our studies in the Minor Prophets. We're going to look at an unaware people. So the theme of unawareness continues uh, in the book of Hosea. So we'll, be, we'll look at the entire chapter this evening. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an evil against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud, it shall never produce meal. And if it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which is no pleasure. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim is hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Because of Ephraim, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities. It shall devour his palaces. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the clarity of your word. We are thankful for the power of your word as your spirit works with that word. We are thankful for your goodness towards us in the new covenant that our sins you do remember no more. Thank you that we are not under the old. Thank you that salvation is not found in the old in the terms of it. But we're thankful for what they point to. We are thankful for what they signify concerning Christ. We are thankful that his sacrifice is sufficient. And we are thankful that his sacrifice, his blood shed is the new covenant. We are thankful so much for this, O God, the internal working that you wrought in your people, that you bring about in your people. You give us new hearts. You give us the gifts of faith and repentance. You give us so many things because of Jesus Christ. And we know that we have many sins that are deserving of everlasting damnation. And we are thankful that they are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And so we ask and pray that you'd help us to be more aware. Help us to be more aware of who you are. Help us to be more aware of your goodness. Help us to be more aware of your word and to love it all the more. And we pray that tonight we would start here. That you'd help us to understand what is going on in Hosea chapter 8. There are difficult things for us to comprehend, yet we know this is your word, and your word does go forth and does not return void. So we pray that you would strengthen your people, that you'd uplift your people, that you'd enlighten our minds and our eyes as we come and consider what your word says. We pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls, and we do pray in all that we do, it would be for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, once again, we do come to that theme of unawareness, and perhaps some of the most unaware people in the world are 
children, especially as it pertains a child's relationship with their parents. There are loving parents and sometimes there are rebellious children. Children, little children, don't see all that parents do for them. And sometimes even as children grow up, they don't see all that those loving parents do for them. Now, while certainly there are terrible parents, sometimes there are just terrible children. Especially when there are parents who have provided for their children for years. They give them good things. They give them good gifts. And then those children rebel against those parents. We would call the child's behavior when they grow up egregious. We would call it appalling. They have received blessing. They receive good things. They receive love. And yet they rebel against their parents. Well, that is much like Adam's sin. God made Adam a vice regent in this world. God gave Adam good gifts, and what does he do? He disobeys. It is egregious. And also describes Israel's sin as well. God gave Israel good gifts. They were the chosen race. They were the royal priesthood. He gave them a good land. And yet, what do they do? They disobey. They are like that appalling child, that egregious child, who does not consider the goodness of God, is of unaware of the goodness of God, and unaware of what pleases God most high. And this is what the Lord, through the prophet Hosea, draws out for us in Hosea chapter 8. Remember, Hosea is prophesying in the 8th century to the northern kingdom. This is the time of the divided kingdom. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. There were only bad kings in Israel. There were a couple good kings in Judah. But for the most part, there were no good kings, save a few in Judah. And remember, the main message of Hosea is Hosea's marriage to Gomer. It's a picture of Israel's spiritual adultery, a picture of Israel's egregious behavior, not just to a kind father, but also to a kind and loving husband as well. And we see what God will do to that adulterous wife, what God will do to that wayward child, both in judgment, but also there is the comfort and encouragement regarding restoration as well. And so we're in the section that deals with a forgetful people. We've seen how they're as faithful as a cloud. We've seen how they're fair weather. We've seen how they waver. We see how they're wicked in their worship. We see how they're wicked in their domestic life. We see how they branch out further and seek aid from others, uh, namely Assyria and from Egypt. They rely upon other nations. They mixed with other nations and they become like other nations in their worship rather than honoring Yahweh and finding their help in Yahweh. They are an unaware people, and that is the problem. They're unaware of God's goodness. They're unaware of what pleases God. But the assumption is they think they know. They say, we know you, God. They try to worship God. In reality, though, they do things that are a strange thing. To them, what pleases God is a strange thing. And there are many people in this world who claim to know God, but will not do what God says. They will not believe upon Jesus Christ, and they will not do what the Lord has said concerning his worship. This is certainly true of other religions. We would say they're religious. They might claim they know God or a God, but in reality, they do not know God at all. This is true of temporary believers, people who claim to be of Christ, but have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They claim to know God, but in reality, they have not had that changed hearts. And it is true to a degree because of remaining corruption for God's people. Now, we are saved. We are redeemed. We are under that new covenant. We cannot fall from it. 
But let's be honest. Sometimes we're very unaware of who God is. Sometimes we're very unaware of the word of God, much, uh, much more unaware than we should be. We have Bibles in our pockets. We have Bibles on our shelves. We have Bibles that we can listen to, yet we're some of the most illiterate generations ever when it comes to theology and when it comes to the things of God. So we are redeemed in Christ. Our salvation is found in Christ. We need to repent and find mercy and forgiveness in him. But let's be honest. We can be very unaware of our behavior, very unaware of our understanding of God, and very unaware of the things that God loves. And so in Hosea chapter 8, Yahweh prophesies about judgment on an unaware people. This unaware people is the key idea for us this evening. And we'll look at it under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see how unaware they are of their good God, verses 1 through 6. Unaware of their good God, verses 1 through 6. Then we'll see unaware of their profane sacrifice in verses 7 through 14. Unaware of their good God, verses 1 through 6. And unaware of their profane sacrifice in verses 7 through 14. So unaware, let's first look at unaware of their good God in verses 1 through 6. Now it is in the context of a senseless people. Remember we saw they were as dumb as doves. Verse 11, Ephraim is also, of chapter 7, Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. They're flapping their way to their death. They don't see those spikes that they're making their way towards. And it manifests in their seeking help in Egypt. But Egypt's got their problems, so they go to the superpower, they go to Assyria, rather than Yahweh, rather than returning to the Lord, rather than coming to the God who made them, the God who created them in creation, but also the God who made them as a nation as well. And the emphasis here seems to be how unaware Israel is of God's goodness. They're unaware of his kindness, unaware of who he is, unaware of what he's done for them, and it does manifest in their idolatry. They would rather worship Baal. They would rather worship the other gods. They would rather worship other things rather than God most high. And so we see that they're unaware of this good God, unaware of their kind God. And it manifests in the fact that they reject what is good. And so in verse one, we do see how they're unaware that God is going to bring judgment upon them. Judgment is coming. And so we see this threat of judgment from the lips of Yahweh. Set the trumpet to your mouth. God is giving a warning. That's the image of what a trumpet is. There is warning that is coming. That's why trumpets are used in the book of Revelation. I do think the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all referring to the same time period. They just emphasize different things. The seal emphasize who's doing it, who's bringing the judgment. It's God. Stamp of approval upon it. Stamp of his seal. The trumpets warn. There's still warning there as these bowl, uh, these trumpets are sounding. There's warning for those to come uh, and repent. And then thirdly is the bulls where their cup fills up, the bull fills up, and then it is poured out. So trumpets here are used for this warning. Set the trumpet to your mouth. There's this warning that there is judgment coming. And perhaps the possible situation could be is when Assyria comes, not just in 722, but prior to that as well. Assyria was supposed to be their savior, but Assyria becomes their oppressor by the hand of Yahweh. Set the trumpet to your mouth and he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, against Israel, against the nation. 
He shall come like an eagle upon unsuspecting prey. That is also the image as well. They're just like walking around. They're like that bunny that has no idea what's about to happen. The eagle swoops in, boom, grabs it. That's what the people of Israel are like. Here comes that eagle. It is Yahweh using Assyria, and they are unsuspecting with what Yahweh is going to do through Assyria. So the trumpet has sounded. Here comes Yahweh. Here comes one like an eagle against the house of Israel. And notice we see the reason why. Because of their transgressions, crystal clear, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. We saw in chapter 6, verse 7, that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Remember, God entered into covenant with them, and we see it fleshed out in detail in the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy remains that foundation for them, even if they forgot it. It remains that charter. If Israel does what is wrong, the prophets can come and say and use uh, Deuteronomy as a way to indict the people, as a way to charge the people, as a way to remind them, here's the coming curses if you do not do what Yahweh says. And they have rebelled. They have transgressed it. It was a covenant of works for life in the land and that God was good to them. God gave them the land, but they do not retain the land. They do not keep the land. They do not, uh, they do not keep the land that God had promised to give to them. And they had to keep it by way of doing what is pleasing in his sight. And so their transgressions manifest in their religious life. Their transgressions manifest in their domestic or civil life as well. Sacred and secular. We see the manifestation of their wickedness. And so judgment is coming. They're unaware of it. And Israel is unaware of their standing before God. Verses two and three. Notice Israel will cry to me. My God, we know you. It is the cry of the judge. But Lord, we are your people. Lord, we know you. Lord, we believe in or Lord, we think we know you. Lord, we worship you. Lord, we do all these things. They claim to know God, but they only know him as one who is part of their pantheon. Right? They worship God alongside all the other gods. They worship Yahweh alongside other, all, the, all the Baals and the Asherahs. They're treating God like one among many rather than the one true and living God who is to be honored alone and is to be worshipped aright. That's the first two commandments. Who we worship, commandment one. The second commandment is how we worship. Don't make for yourselves false idols. Don't raise up a golden calf and say, look, it's Yahweh who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, which is exactly what they do in Exodus 32 with the golden calf scenario. Look, it's Yahweh. Brethren, we don't need visuals, right? Because visuals only denigrate God Almighty. And they wanted visuals. Here's this, here's this calf. What does that say about God or what they think about God most high? But Israel is unaware. They're unaware of what's going on. They're unaware of their standing. They're unaware of the judgment. They think, but we're your people, Lord. We know you. They claim to still be the people of God. But in reality, verse 3, they have rejected what is good. Israel has rejected the good, and the enemy will pursue him. God is goodness in his essence, but he demonstrates his goodness towards them. And we see it demonstrated towards them by way of covenant. He brought them out of the land of Egypt in the Exodus. He guided them through the wilderness after their unfaithfulness. He brought them and fought for them as they entered into the land and crossed over the Jordan. He divided the land and gave it to them. 
And yet, what do the people do? They have rejected what is good. And what is good is defined by what God says. And this is why covenant reflection is important, because in Deuteronomy 30, 15, Moses says to the people, See, I have set before you today life and good. If you do what I say, if you do what my commandments, oh, the commandments that I've laid forth in this book, things will go well. Commandments were meant to be for their good, right? They weren't meant to be a drudgery. They weren't meant to be just a list of do's and don'ts, but it was meant to be for their good to enjoy the land. And remember, we have to think of it covenantally, again, for life in the land, with Israel, uh, God entering into a covenant of works with them. I've set before you today life and good. Do what I say, worship me, honor me, things will go well. But what do they choose? They choose death and evil. And so the enemy pursues them. The enemy will come after them and the Lord will use the enemies of the people as instruments of judgment. So they reject what is good, but also notice they reject the king of the Lord. Verses four through six. And notice we see verse four again. This is specifically with the northern kingdom in mind. Notice verse four. They set up kings but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. This is a direct indictment against that northern kingdom. Remember in the north, there, was only, there, were, there were no good kings whatsoever. All wicked, all evil. And this is a bit of a hat tip. This is a bit of a reminder indirectly of the Davidic covenant. Where did God set up his throne? Where did God set up the throne of the Messiah? It was in Jerusalem and Israel in the north cut themselves off from that very covenant and from that very promise. That's why in the south, yes, a lot of the kings are bad, but there are still a few decent kings there in the south. There are still a few. That's where the Davidic line is. That's where the Davidic promise lies. It comes from the one who will come from the line of David, who will come from the tribe of Judah. But Jeroboam sets up another kingdom, sets up a kingdom in the north. He sets up golden calves in Bethel and Dan so that the people in the north would not go to the south and be brought in. Israel is divided and there are major issues that result of that division. It was judgment against Solomon, but also major issues that, uh, that um, arise because of it. Now, thankfully, in Hosea 13, we see how Yahweh is going to be king. Yahweh will be their king. We see this uh, restoration. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Verse nine, but your help is from me. So the Lord will be their king. That is the David will be their king, but one who is greater than David will be their king. But Israel in the north, they set up their own kings, but they were not of the Lord. They set up kings, and they were not according to Deuteronomy 17 either. A king was supposed to do what according to Deuteronomy 17? Meditate upon that law day and night. Make sure he knew the law of the land, but none of those kings do that very thing. Instead, they're taken away, and they are lured by their wives from pagan lands, we certainly see this with Jezebel and Ahab. Certainly Ahab was a wicked man, but Jezebel does not help in any sort of, by any sort of stretch of the imagination. She just eggs him on, directs him, and is very, very wicked. There is no good king in the north. 
They set up kings, but they were not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. So they make up their own kings. They reject what is good. They reject the promise of God. But notice they reject God himself. They raise up idols, verses 4 through 6. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. They made things that have mouths but do not speak and eyes that do not see. They raised up idols for themselves with gold and silver, thinking, here's my visual here. This is how I'm going to worship Yahweh. And the result is they're going to be cut off. They were not supposed to worship any other God. They were not supposed to worship any idol. They were not supposed to worship God by way of idols. And yet they do so anyway, that they might be cut off. And he goes on to talk about the specific situation with the calf. Now, it's not the calf in Exodus 32, but it's the calf that was raised up by Jeroboam in Bethel and Dan, places of worship so they didn't have to go to Jerusalem. And so certainly Samaria is the capital talking about the whole land, but their calf is rejected. Your bull is not going to save you. Your bull is going to be smashed to pieces. My anger is aroused against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? That is what the language says there. How long will they be incapable of being innocent? Which highlights just how guilty they truly are. Here is God's goodness. Here is God's kindness. Here is God's graciousness. Here is God's long suffering. But the people worship idols instead. The peoples worship calves instead, rather than the God of heaven and earth and the God of Israel. Even from this, verse 6, from this, Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Their idol is not God at all. And again, that's the delusion, isn't it? They think they're worshiping Yahweh through that golden calf, but it is not God at all. And God is going to destroy it. Their gods are not going to be able to save them from the judgment of the true and living God. A workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. They were unaware of the goodness of God. They were unaware of what pleased God. They did not consider God. And brethren, the application does seem to be when we, the, the problem is when we don't consider our God. When we don't consider who he is, dear brethren, we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it takes us a long time to learn some things, and we ought to be thankful that God is very patient and long-suffering with us. But as we've talked about in the morning sermons, there is a crisis when it comes to the doctrine of God and our understanding of who God is. We still, in a lot of ways, make God in our image, dear brethren. Rather than recognizing we've been made in his image, we want God to emote like us sometimes. People struggle with the doctrine of impassibility that God does not feel like you and I do. I'm so thankful the Lord does not feel like you and I do because we're a train wreck. We're a roller coaster. We go up and down, but God is, and God does not change. And so we must recognize he is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign king. God is God, and we are man. And the problem is when man does not consider God or even consider God as sovereign. That's another struggle in modern times, isn't it, with the church? It's a struggle throughout all times, but especially in our modern times. There's nothing new under the sun. Man does not consider God sovereign. Christians don't want to consider God as sovereign. Do we really have a, full, a good grasp of who our God is as he's revealed himself to us in God's word? 
And even practically for us as Calvinists, we've mentioned this before, but sometimes we struggle with the practical outworking of God's providence, right? We sometimes struggle with the fact we believe and confess God is sovereign. God is guiding all things. It is the power of God in which he guides all things for the end in which he created them. He upholds all things. And something happens in our life according to his providence and we freak out. We whine and grumble and complain. How could this happen? Brethren, we believe in a sovereign God. He's meant to give, uh, that truth is meant to give us comfort in times of goodness and prosperity, but also comfort in times of adversity as well. God has appointed one as well as the other. So brethren, we ought to consider God. See how theology helps us in our Christian life. God is sovereign, we're not. God is king and we can put our faith and trust in him that he might know what is best for us. That's why we ought to be content in whatever aspect or whatever situation we are in, whatever circumstance we are in, because maybe our heavenly father knows what is best for us. Maybe our heavenly father knows what we need in that moment. Maybe our heavenly father knows that we need to go through a certain trial to wean us from the world or teach us something, dear brethren. I'm not saying we go looking for trial or tribulation, but maybe God knows what we need as it draws us to him all the more. So we ought to consider who God is. And then we've already talked about this a little bit just now, but what God does for us, a God who is, who provides for us, a God who is gracious to us, a God who gives us good things. And we ought not to grumble or complain. We ought not to be whiners and grumblers and complainers, although that's uh, very easy to do when things don't go our way and we balk at the providence of God and we need to ask him for mercy and forgiveness for balking at his providence. Calvinists balk at God's providence. We ought not to do that, dear brethren. Now, again, you know, balking at God's providence, thankfully, is forgiven in Jesus Christ, but we ought not to balk at God's providence. Let us never forget or be unaware of our good God. Let us never be unaware of who he is and what he has done for us. Let us not be an unaware people when it comes to the goodness of God. So that's how Israel was unaware of their good God. Let's then look secondly at, and we'll see how unaware they were of their profane sacrifice. Unaware of their profane sacrifice. Verses 7 through 14. Notice in verse 7 and through 10, we see what they sow and reap. And so we see the sowing and the reaping. Verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. So this is uh, produce imagery. This is um, agricultural imagery. And probably what is going on here is uh, Gill says they're referring to their worship. They sow the wind. Their worship has zero substance to it. They make sounds, they make noises, they dance around, they do all these sorts of things according to the world around them. But it's just wind. It is nothing. And as they engage in wicked worship that is just wind, they're going to reap the whirlwind. They're going to reap judgment. They sow in wind. They have nothing that they give to God. There's nothing that is acceptable. They engage in wicked worship, unacceptable worship. And as a result of what they're going to reap is the judgment of God. Remember, especially with the, uh, uh, the, the covenant that God made with them, with Israel, the main thing is worship. When we look at the kings, how do we know that they did evil or what is good? 
with respect to the high places. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not remove the high places, but sacrificed his son at the high places. He did good in the sight of the Lord. He removed the high places. He trampled them and smashed them down. Or he did good in the sight of the Lord. He, you know, he trampled, he removed some of, the, some of these things and removed it from the temple, but did not remove the high places. It is with respect to worship. They sow and they reap. Gill says the sense is the Israelites took a great deal of pains in the idolatrous worship of the calves and made a great stir, bustle and noise in it like the wind were very vainglorious and ostentatious, made a great show of religion and devotion and promised themselves great things from it. Peace and plenty, wealth and riches, all prosperity and happiness enjoyed by heathen nations. But this was lost labor. It was laboring for the wind or sowing that they got nothing by it. Or what was worse than nothing, a proved not only useless, but hurtful to them. For, for their idolatry and continuance in it, the whirlwind of God's wrath would be raised up against them. And the Assyrian army, like a vehement storm of wind, would rush in upon them and destroy them. So that, so to the, so that they sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And that's exactly what happens. They do not grow. They do not produce anything. The stock has no bud. It shall never produce meal. And if it does, they're not going to eat of it. Aliens would swallow it up. Verse 7. 8. Israel is swallowed up. They think they sow. They think they're able to try and muster up something to receive good things. That's what they're doing, right? That's why they worship the way they do, because they want things. But in reality, they get absolutely nothing. In reality, they get judgment. They can, you know, dim the lights as much as they want, have the smoke machines as much as they want, set the mood as much as they want. They can try and, you know, conjure up and try to elicit a response from God as much as they want. But in reality, it is just sowing the wind. When we come to worship, dear brethren, we are responding to what God has done for us. We're not eliciting, eliciting a response from God, trying to get him to respond to us. We come and worship him for what he has done for us. But all pagan worship is trying to get God to respond with Israel. And notice they go up and they seek aid from Assyria. But Assyria is going to set them aside. Assyria, help us. Assyria says, sure, we'll help. And then they devour them. They're going to be like a wild donkey alone by itself. They're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. Shows their self-will. They're going to the end, going to do what they want to do, rather than what God has said. That's a sad reality when someone dies in their sins, isn't it? When someone is not saved, they go to the end with their stubborn self-will. That's why what does God do? He changes our hearts. He breaks our will. He gives us a new heart that we might be willing in the day of his power to come to him, to believe upon him by grace alone. I uh, believe upon him that we might have grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But one who dies in their sin just is like a stubborn donkey. And Ephraim still doesn't get it. Israel still doesn't get it. They hire lovers. They wanted that love. They want to feel that, that, that attention. They want to feel that love. They want that love somewhere, but... They don't find it in the loving husband. They don't find it in Yahweh. They find it in other ways. And those lovers will not give them a love that lasts forever. They keep going. They keep seeking. But yet they're just going to find sorrow. Verse 10. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, I will gather them not in a positive way. I will gather them for judgment and they shall sorrow a little. 
because of the burden of the king of princes, because of the wickedness that they have engaged in, because of the vileness that they have operated in, God will bring them to judgment. There is a loving husband who heals and forgives and revives, Hosea 6, but they would not go to him. Now, we know Hosea 6 points ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is this comfort and promise of repentance should they turn to this one who is gracious and good, and yet they do not. Shows the depravity of man, doesn't it? Man just presses on in his sin. Man just presses on in his wickedness. Man just wants to do his thing rather than what God has said. And so what they sow, they reap. And then we see in verses 11 through 14 what they worship and how unaware of true worship they are. Ephraim, verse 11, has made many altars for sin. They have become for him altars for sinning. You can't say they're not a religious people, can you? They have their religion, but in reality it is one of sinfulness. You couldn't say Israel never considered the sacred, but they did so in a sinful way. They had altars for sin. Altars where they offered up idols, altars that were not the place that God had chosen, according to Deuteronomy 12, and they became altars for sinning. And not just that, perhaps there was temple prostitution there as well. And the purpose is sinful, and the acts that are done at it are sinful. Their purpose, again, is the mercenary spirit. They want things from God to elicit a response from him rather than to honor and praise his name for what he has done. And so they go and they worship. They bring their sacrifices, but they have become altars for sin, according to their nature, but also, also in the acts that they do. They have become for him altars for sinning. And notice they're very ignorant of this. Verse 12, I have written for him the great things of my law. They can't say God never told them. They can't say it was never laid out very clearly on how God wanted to be worshipped how God commanded that he should be worshipped. God laid it all forth in Deuteronomy 12 and the book of Leviticus. Here's how, Israel, you get to approach unto this God. You approach by way of sacrifice, and as you walk with him, you walk in holiness. That's why we have the sacrificial system approaching unto God and the holiness ritual purity system, how one walks with God. Israel had that. The other nations did not have that, but Israel had that, yes, for life in the land, but nonetheless, they still had that blessed privilege. Here's how you can walk with me, but... Verse 12, they were considered a strange thing. Oh, you mean I have to worship in this way? I can't worship the Baals as well? You mean I can't do what the world wants? I just have to do it how you want to do it, oh God? They considered it a strange thing, didn't they? They considered it an odd thing. Here is God's word, and yet they reject God's word. They're unaware that their sacrifices are profane, and they're unaware of what is pleasing to God most high. The parallels to our time period, and really any time period, is uncanny, isn't it? I mean, come on. They considered it a strange thing? People do not want to follow the word of God. That's why it's hard to tell people and preach the word of God. That's why churches where the word of God is preached typically don't have 15,000 people in it. Because people want their ears tickled. 
People want uh, prophets that they raise up, met teachers of their own fancy. That's what they would prefer because they consider the word of God a strange thing. They don't want to follow the word of God when it comes to salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. They don't want to follow the Lord of the word of God when it comes to our Christian living. Here's how you're supposed to live if you have been saved. We have all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And people certainly do not want to follow what God says when it comes to the church. When it comes to worship, when it comes to the authority of the church, you mean women can't be pastors? No, they cannot be pastors. Read 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The Bible is crystal clear. We just don't want to do what the Bible says. Or even the officers in it. There are some churches that have a million different offices and different officers and, and separate pastors and elders. Brethren, pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer in the Bible is referring to the same thing. We have a board of elders who make decisions, who can't teach. They, are, they must be qualified according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1, and 2 Timothy 2, and Acts chapter 20. People do not want to follow the word of God. And in worship, people want to look like the world. Again, brethren, there are other good churches. I just want to caveat. Sometimes I feel like I have to explain myself when I get on this harping mood. That when I have to explain myself, brethren, there are other good churches who have bands and ministries and that sort of thing. However, what is the main thing? We still have to ask ourselves that, right? What is the main thing and what has God commanded in his Word. People think we're strange. I mean, I am a little strange, but people in general think we're strange. They come in, you guys all dress nice. You guys don't have a pastor with skinny jeans and a latte up there and a funky weird hat that he wears like a fedora, that sort of thing. He actually dresses kind of hopefully a little bit nice. Oh, you come in and we sing hymns that are about the Bible and the guy preaches for an hour and he only, he only sing like not that long. Brethren, we're not the weird ones in history. I just want to point that out. You know, people never think that maybe there is another way that the Bible emphasizes and also that has been used in history. Now, brothers, I get, I get angry. Is it angry or grumpy? I don't know, probably a little bit of both. Because that's how I was. We think we know better. We think we've figured it out. We think we've got it. And I have figured it out now, but we think we've got it. And then we come to the word of God and someone tells us, hey, you know, you might be wrong. And it's a strange thing. We consider the word of God a strange thing. If you were to ask people, how do you build your church? They would probably not come to me and ask me how to build, build a church. Or they wouldn't ask Pastor Butler or ask the Reformed Baptists, how do we build the church? I would say we just be faithful and preach the word of God and do what God has called us to do and worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship him acceptably. That's Hebrews chapter 12. That's New Testament stuff because he's a consuming fire. I mean, brethren, when you start to see the, you know, you learn about the regulative principle, we worship according to God's word. You start to see it everywhere. You see it in Deuteronomy. You see it in Hosea. You see it in Hebrews. We worship God in spirit and in truth. Again, people are shocked when they come here. No band, no ministries, no whatever. But in reality, who is truly the strange one when it comes to history? Who is the unaware one uh, when it comes to history? Now, I do say, you know, we need to be gracious with people when they come in and correct them and guide them along. But in reality, what we do, I do believe, is the historical and biblical way that we do worship. 
because we worship God acceptably according to his word and his ways. Because Israel's worship was unacceptable. Verses 13 and 14. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. They still tried to offer, but they did not do so in an acceptable way. And thankfully, we do so through Christ. We are acceptable through him. And we worship according to his word. And certainly we know, uh, but Israel again was saying, we know you, we know you, Lord. And look, we worship you. I mean, Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice in the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Not saying that they're against, or God is against worship, but Israel was coming to worship and they were not honoring God in other ways as well. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, but true knowledge should issue forth into right worship. But Israel, we know you. But here's our worship, but the reality is they do not know God at all, and they're engaging in their sins. And so the result is he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Henry says, note, God never casts off any till they first cast him off. Or as we read it, they have cast off the thing that is good, referring to verse 3. They have cast off that which denominates men good. They have cast off the fear of God and regard the regard of man in all sense of virtue and honesty. And God remembers. God will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Or remember, old covenant. God remembers their sins and iniquities and will punish their transgressions. And we see this as they return to Egypt a reversal of the exodus. In reality, it's going back to Assyria. We saw a little bit of that in chapter 7, verse 16. The cursings of their tongue, they shall be the derision in the land of Egypt. They're going back to Assyria. They're going to Assyria, but it is back to Egypt. They're going into captivity once again. God brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they're going back into captivity. And the reason is, verse 14... For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Certainly forgot the creator of heaven and earth, but mainly forgot the one who made them a people. We see this language in Deuteronomy 32, 6. They're a stubborn people and they forgot the Lord who made them. And so the the people of Israel uh, need to be reminded that they were not a special people. God made them special. God chose them, God delivered them, but in themselves, God God did not choose them because they were the mightiest or the most righteous, but because God is good. Israel has forgotten his maker and builds temples. There's supposed to be one temple, but Israel builds many temples. There's supposed to be one place of worship, yet they have multiple places of worship. And Judah honestly is no better. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire from his city upon his cities and it shall devour his places. Now we know Judah in the south is not devoured by Assyria. It gets close though. This is under King Hezekiah. Things are bleak. Sennacherib 701 BC. Things are not good. He's basically taken everything. Sennacherib's taken everything except Jerusalem. And that's when Hezekiah prays and God used the angel of the Lord to rout Sennacherib's army and they're pushed back. But eventually Judah does go into captivity in the south. Jerusalem goes into captivity in 586 BC. So problems abound everywhere. Israel has forgotten his maker. Judah has forgotten his maker. And God is going to bring judgment upon them for 
their wickedness. Now, the application hopefully is clear, and the problem is when we don't consider God's word. We don't consider God, but we don't consider God's word. Brethren, we ought to love God's word. (laughs) We ought to believe God's word. We ought to obey God's word. We ought to do what God says regarding worship and the Christian life. And again, God's word is pretty clear as far as how our life ought to be, right? He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm not saying there's not hard things. I'm not saying there aren't little details that are difficult for us to understand. I'm not saying there aren't hard books for us to understand. Hosea being one of them. Uh, Ecclesiastes being another. Revelation, Hebrews, etc. But as far as things that pertain to life and godliness, that is clear. What is sin? It is lawlessness. You're a wretch. You've transgressed the law. Where is forgiveness and salvation from our sin? It's in Jesus Christ who came to save his people from their sins. What is the Christian life? How do we honor God? By fearing God and keeping his commandments. That is the Christian life. When it comes to worship, what do we do? We worship according to God's word, especially preaching. What's Paul's final command? Preach the word. That is the thrust, that is the purpose of the institution of the church, that we preach the word of God, God speaks to us, church is a glimpse and foretaste of heaven, we actually come to heaven every Lord's Day, you're in heaven right now, you might not realize that, but you're in heaven right now, as we come and gather as a glimpse and foretaste of what it will be like when we get to sing praises to God's name, forever we shall see Christ as he is, but those things are very clear. And even right worship is very clear. Right living is very clear. It's just hard for us to do it. Why is prayer hard? Why is reading the Bible hard? Why is working hard hard? (laughs) Why is loving our spouse hard? Why is loving our children hard? Why Why is it hard to raise children? Why is it hard to come to church, dear brethren? Because it's the best thing for us. And as we war, as the spirit wars against the flesh, and as we have to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're going to have those wars. But that's why we need to ask God for forgiveness, ask God for strength, and get up and do what we're supposed to do. We ought to make those things the priority in our life. We ought to emphasize those things, even when it does come to church. What's interesting, dear brethren, why does everything else take the priority? I'm probably speaking to the choir a little bit here, but it's a good reminder for us and whoever might be listening at home or will listen one day down the road. But brethren, when you make plans and you're looking at your schedule with someone, oh, I can't do that day because I've got this. Why is church never the thing? Well, I can't do it on Sunday because I've got church. Why is church the thing that we kind of brush off? I read this in a book. I saw this on Twitter somewhere, and it resonated with me. We put everything, we put church in the background rather than making church the priority when we're making our schedule. Why do we do that? You just be, when it, when it, our, 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 our proclivity or our, 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 the fact that we struggle with these very things shows us that they are very good for us. And If we just read God's word, we'd also know that they're very good for us as well. So, brethren, we ought to consider God's word. Love God's word, be in God's word, pray God's word, be under the preaching of God's word, live God's word. The word of God is something we ought to be aware of always in our life. And thankfully, if we're not as aware as we should be, God is patient and gracious. 
and God helps us. We can ask him and he gives us the ability to understand. He enlightens our minds and our eyes according to Ephesians chapter 1. And thankfully, brethren, we do know God. And if there's unbelievers here today or unbelievers who are listening, the reality is God has been good to you. He gave you life. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. He gives you good gifts. And what have you done? You've sinned against God. And the only way to know God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Other religions, other people will say they know God. The Pharisees said they know God. Others have said they know God. But in reality, it is only through Jesus Christ. And we'll close just by looking at Matthew chapter 7. This is where we're going to close. If you rely upon your own works or own deeds, you are unaware. And I do think Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is referring to faith in Christ. Because these ones are not aware that they need to believe on Christ. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Notice it's not Christ, but have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we and done many wonders in your name? They're relying upon what they've done and not upon Christ Jesus. They are unaware. That's why we need to make people aware. There's only one way of salvation. It is in Jesus Christ, and we pray that the Spirit makes people aware as well. And then I will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We pray that the Spirit would make people aware of their sin. People make people aware of their need for Christ and believe upon him. And thankfully, brethren, if we believed on Christ, we can know that we have eternal life and know that we know the God of heaven and earth and know this God according to the new covenant, wherein there is that promise where he says, their sins I will remember no more. Don't forget that, dear brethren. That's the promise and assurance of the new covenant that the sins of God's people, he remembers no more. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your patience with us and long suffering with us and kindness towards us. And we know so often we do not take you at your word as we should. So often we do not trust in your promises like we ought. So often the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we are thankful for how you do point us to the things we need to hear and understand. You do help us understand those things, and we are thankful that this comes from the fact that we are saved and in Christ Jesus. And we pray as we have been saved and been given a new life and given hope in him, we pray that we would walk in your ways. We pray that we'd be more and more aware of your goodness, more and more aware of who you are and what you've done that we'd be more aware of, uh, of what your word says and be a people of the book. And we pray that you'd help us to prioritize the things of heaven, the things of God, the things of you. Help us to be faithful in our Christian walk. Help us to be faithful spouses and parents and um, employees, employers, whatever situation we find ourselves in, you have placed us in according to your fatherly dispensation. We pray that you'd help us to honor and glorify you in those places and pray that you would just give us the strength that we need. Please forgive us for our 
uh, ignorance, please forgive us for our lack of understanding. And we pray that you'd help us to understand who you are all the more, to love you all the more, and to worship you all the more. Thank you for all that you've done. Help us as we go into the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ.